This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. States all over the U.S. criticized for slow rollouts of the vaccines, many of them opening up the shots to people 65 and older. But there's a problem. The reserve doses that were promised by the feds, well, apparently they aren't there. So we'll get into that. Stores are getting hit hard by the virus and the workers are dealing with the worst of it. The president-elect announcing his massive stimulus plan to get the economy back on track. Will it work? Remember when we all thought 2020 just had to be the worst year ever? Well, 2021 says, hold my drink. It's been something. Let's start with the vaccine distribution and what's really going on. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, professor of epidemiology, infectious diseases, UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health, used to work with the CDC. So, doctor, we thought that there were a bunch of doses that were going to be released, but now it turns out that they're not there. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we just have to be, you know, careful in terms of uh, what we hear and use the vaccines that we have on hand. So in Los Angeles County, uh, they certainly have uh, vaccines on hand and we have to prioritize getting those vaccines into what's called our 1A population, which are uh, healthcare workers. Um, I've heard good things about a lot of the healthcare workers being successfully vaccinated in hospitals and major medical centers, even uh, community-based clinics and primary care, uh, long-term care uh, facilities, nursing homes, intermediate care um, continues to uh, be successful. My main concern though, particularly in LA County, is can we get vaccine to unaffiliated health workers, particularly in-home support service workers. So people who do the low wage work where they go into elderly um, people's homes and help them with their activities of daily living, that's the population we really need to reach right now. When we look at the, let's let's go back up to the big picture and then we'll we'll shrink back down to the county. But when it comes to to what we've seen from the feds here, is this going to translate to setting us back or is it just that the expected windfall the good news is not there we're not gaining anything more than what we thought we had in the first place yeah so you know it's someone tells you something and how much can you trust uh, what they tell you i think you know we've been burnt uh, over the past four years by trusting in this uh, administration and we should realize that cannot trust you know what they say and uh fortunately the voters have recognized that and we're going to be moving on next week and uh with greater transparency with a better inventory management system with actually showing states and counties what the inventory is i think people will be able to be more confident in terms of their vaccination distribution plans yeah it's it's obviously unfortunate that you know we relied on uh, you know, what the federal administration was what was telling us at the state and county level. And, uh, you know, we were burnt by setting up expectations too high. But, you know, uh, and, and I guess I want to be fair to the feds as well in this conversation, because it, it does seem to me that in the past year or so, uh, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing and every finger it seems to be toward the feds. But isn't there also a lot of culpability in the part of of state governments and county governments and municipal governments? I mean, there's a lot more that they could be doing, too. I I mean, can you really hold up L.A. County and say they've been doing a superlative job? There are a lot of missteps at the county level as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it really comes down to we've inadequately funded our public health infrastructure at the national, state and county level for 
decade. So, you know, in the field I spend most of my time, which is the prevention of sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV, things like congenital syphilis have exploded in terms of numbers. And that's a direct reflection of our failed public health system. So this epidemic has just revealed, you know, the huge deficiencies in our public health infrastructure that we as a democracy, as people have not adequately invested in. I mean, Americans are the voters who, you know, send their representatives to Washington who determine what should be funded and what should not be funded and what the priorities are. And, you know, the people have said, well, you know, public health is fine. It's in the background. A good day in public health is when nothing happens, but we haven't put in the investment. So now we really need, you know, a, a you know, new deal for uh, public health in this country. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, professor of epidemiology, infectious diseases, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Coronavirus outbreaks are hitting supermarkets and retail stores now as the uh, winter surge continues, but the customers aren't really at high risk. It's the workers. Andrea Zinder, president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, local 324 in Southern California. So it's not the customers, it's the workers here, right? Yes, I don't, I don't know among the customers, but I do know that it's running rampant within the stores and um, all grocery clerks um, are extremely exposed right now. And um, it's very, very um, concerning and unsettling. Well, I, do you have any clue as how they're getting it? I mean, they are wearing, and the supermarkets I go to, they're wearing masks and they have plexiglass that separates them. For example, if they're, if they're at the uh, cashier uh, part, they have a plexiglass that separates them from the customers. So if they're wearing masks and they're doing all that other stuff, how do we know how they're getting it? Well, I think it's um, not strictly enforced in terms of um, customers. Sometimes the stores are crowded. The social distancing doesn't always work as we would like it to. Customers um, wear a mask, but sometimes they pull them down uh, below their nose. Um, there is just a lot of ways that the virus can get into the workplace and supermarket clerks are just vulnerable. I guess some of this could be, though, that everyone is just working together, right? And even if you're in the break room and there's some people there, sometimes COVID can get brought in. And then if you are all working together and you've got a group of 20 or 50 or however many it takes to run the store, it can move through that population if, if somebody brings it in. We know what community spread looks like anyways. It can come in from one person and then spread throughout the store. But it also, you know, um, sometimes comes in from the customers who who aren't following the protocols as closely as we would like. And there is no, um, for the most part, there's nobody monitoring it at the supermarket level. Um, if there was somebody who stood at the front door and monitored it, it might help some. Well, uh, again, I, I guess it depends because I certainly haven't visited every supermarket, but I know the ones that I've gone to, uh, there usually has been somebody in the front sort of monitoring how many are going in and making sure they're wearing masks. I think it's spotty as to whether or not there's anybody in front of the store. I think that there are certain communities where it's probably more prevalent and then there's other communities where there just isn't anybody counting how many people are going into the store um, or necessarily monitoring the masks. So now past... I will say most people I will say most people go into the store with a mask, but whether they um, wear them properly throughout the shopping experience, that that varies. Yeah, you, you tend to slip. Um... Past that, what more can be done here? 
past getting people to wear the masks and somebody, you know, enforcing this? Somebody enforcing the distancing would be um, important. Somebody enforcing the um, number of customers going into the store at any one time would help. Testing is something that we think would help tremendously. If the companies would just implement regular testing at store level um, and test all employees, um, I, we, we think it would stop the spread somewhat. So testing is, a, is another um, great way of catching the virus before it, um, it goes too far. Um, so there, there is just, um, there's a lot of things that the, the disinfecting that the stores were doing at the very beginning where they were doing thorough cleanings every single night. For the most part, that has stopped um, the um, washing, uh, giving up an opportunity to wash hands every 30 minutes. A lot of that is no longer taking place in the supermarkets. So, so how concerned should consumers be about going shopping? Well, I think consumers um, are generally speaking not standing in one location um, for an extended period of time. So um, if they're moving through the store relatively um, you know, quickly, they probably have less exposure than somebody who is standing there um, you know, for um, up to eight hours a day doing work in the produce department or doing work in a service deli um, or a bakery or even uh, uh, checking out customers. So I think the amount of exposure of supermarket clerks is a lot greater than it is for customers. But of course, customers need to be need to be, um, you know, vigilant as well. Andrea Zinder, president, United Food and Commercial Workers, uh, Local 324 in Southern California. President-elect Biden has two big objectives to start his presidency. First, he wants to get as many vaccine doses out as possible. Second, he's pushing a two trillion dollar stimulus package. People and businesses could be getting some more money. The checks. Will this work? Villanova University business professor David Fiorenza broke down the plan with KYW's Matt Leon. Let's talk about the needs of the American people. And I think this plan will address the needs of the American people. Those who are the middle income, lower middle income, those who are right above poverty level as well. And when we talk about specifically the, the those direct cash payments, that would seem really critical from an economic standpoint because that is money that's going to get really injected into a lot of different segments of the economy, no? That's correct. There won't be one segment that will not that will be unaffected. Everybody will be affected. I'm hoping that they're going to continue with the moratorium on those who who have mortgages or those who have uh, landlords and maybe the fact that they can get an extra month without having to pay the full amount. Uh, but people are going to pay their bills. They're going to pay their utilities. Uh, they're going to pay their credit cards. They're going to pay down on everything, hopefully save a little bit and then possibly keep some of it for the spring and summer when they can go on vacations this year. One of the other things it looks like uh, there is money for state and local governments. That's something we have talked about uh, ad nauseum. I think one number I saw, $350 billion. How critical is that? And that really seemed to be the sticking point that was holding a lot of things up uh, in the past. That's another thing that I think will benefit a lot of people that don't realize it's going to benefit them. 
That that's correct, Matt. There's a lot of things going on. Some of this money is going to be used uh, to build maybe new health centers, maybe to build county health centers and strengthen our county health centers throughout the tri-state area. So people said, well, I'm, I don't see the benefits of, of the counties or state governments getting the money. However, I think it is going to be put to good use for the most part. Sure, there's always those times when it may not get used right away or we don't like the way it's being spent, but you're going to see some of the money going to be go back into maybe even infrastructure. Some Something that's been talked about, especially you and I, for the last four years, infrastructure is something that needs to be addressed. And not for nothing, but it also could help stave off layoffs that people would obviously feel very personally, whether you're talking, uh, you know, government workers, police, firefighters, what have you. Right, especially our our first responders, whether they're firefighters, EMS, police, and even though the people who are working in the offices, uh, we want to keep them employed as much as possible. Uh, They spend money, they earn a wage, uh, they're part of the GDP, which is the gross domestic product as well. So now let's talk uh, jobs numbers. Not good this week. Uh, Somewhere in the neighborhood of a million first-time unemployment claims. I think it's been trending in this direction because the virus has gotten worse and things have had to shut down again, but uh, this is really not good. Right. Now, some of it is uh, the layoffs you would see after the uh, Christmas and holiday retail sales. However, those stores did not hire as much as they normally normally would hire anyway. So a lot of this is, is that second or third surge that has been talked about. Uh, I'm looking through all my paperwork. I find one little glimmer of hope that it was under a million people filing for unemployment claims um, for the week ending January 9th. It seems to me that a robust stimulus plan like the Biden team is putting out now, this is what the the Federal Reserve has kind of been clamoring for, uh, the kind of almost, I I feel at times, almost scolding Congress for not getting enough help out the door. This seems to be more in line with what the Fed's been asking for, or not so much asking for, but thinking that we need it. Correct. And the Federal Reserve uh, being nonpartisan throughout all the years that I've I've been looking at and studying the Federal Reserve, uh, what they're looking at is saying, yes, this is going on our balance sheets. Yes, it's, it's something that we have to pay back. But we want to get through this pandemic. We don't want this to linger for years and years. We're in a society that this may never happen again, God willing. And we want they want to treat it a little bit more aggressively than they would have treated it uh, if there wasn't a Federal Reserve. So I understand both sides. I understand that there's debt. But I also understand that uh, you want to keep your economy going because as the United States turns, so does the world turn. What are you seeing in housing? I know it's something you are always kind of keeping an eye on as far as an indicator of where we're going. Well, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. And we've talked weeks and weeks about housing, that housing starts uh, is a good indicator of how the economy is going. Uh, I think in 2021, it will continue to do very well. My concern is, and we've talked about wage gaps, I think, and income gaps in the past. My concern is that the, the rising price 
and cost of housing? And can middle America afford it? It's good if you own property right now and the value of your home is going up. It's not good if you don't own property and you want to put a down payment on because housing prices are rising uh, pretty significantly the last four or five years. And our wages are not rising as much as that. Now, take housing. You have housing prices. Along with that, you have your closing costs, you have your taxes, you have your utilities, your maintenance. So I think it's becoming harder and harder for people to afford single family housing compared to, let's say, condos or townhomes, row homes, or what is known as affordable housing in this area. Coming up after this short break, if your stress from 2020 is carrying over into this new year, you are far from alone. Most everyone was thrilled on New Year's to finally bid farewell to 2020. Not many people can actually claim they had a good time. Yeah, this New Year's been full of anxiety. Still, looks like uh, it's not going to get better anytime soon. So what do we do? Beverly Hills-based clinical psychologist Dr. Jenny Tates is with us. Doctor, this year it is, uh, it's not great so far. It is, it is absolutely crummy to say the least, and it's awful, and it's really upsetting. And also, it doesn't say anything about what you know next week is going to be like or what February will be like. And I think one of the ways we could cope best with profound pain and disappointment is to not prolong it by assuming that this is going to be sort of symbolic of the rest of 2021. Okay, so maybe we can get out of it that way. Did we do it to ourselves, though, by marking it as a goalpost, by saying, you know, that night's going to change and I'm going to wake up the next morning and something's going to feel different? Well, no, it's just another day. It's not going to feel different. I don't, I don't know, because there's something so positive and um, it, like a wonderful thing to have is hope. And that's like a virtue that we all need right now and something that keeps us going that leads to actually like improvements in, you know, longevity and for sure mental health. And so I don't think anyone should be down on themselves for having hope and maybe hope is some sort of buffer. Um, and, you know, I think people can also normalize their upset for very good reason. And also things might change in it dramatic, positive way in the future as well. Well, you know, as you know, it, it, it's that old uh, adage, you know, there are people, some people see the glass half full, some see it half empty. I'm the kind of person who I don't even see the glass. So tell me what I need to do. I think, you, yeah, I think you need to take things moment to moment and notice your feelings, normalize your feelings, and as best you can keep them uh, current in the moment, because what I see that is causing so much distress is people that are speculating based on what this happens, this, you know, is going to be some sort of horrible, you know, I don't even want to say it, like replication of the Holocaust or something, you know, people that are catastrophizing and making things uh, to mean something worse than what we've experienced. Of course, you know, we need to do productive things and take adequate, appropriate measures. And, you know, of course, security needs to be improved. But, um, you know, we also don't want to, you know, live in a worst case catastrophe um, anticipation when that hasn't, you know, when we don't necessarily know that that's going to unfold. And we have all the reason to believe that things can change next week. Some people say, you know, don't worry about things you, you can't change or that are weeks away or something, because then you're just you're just spending all day like stewing about the potential for that, which is great and easy to say. And it'd be wonderful if everyone could do that. But how do you actually do that. Let's say I'm waiting for a vaccine and I know it's going to take a while now, but every day I keep thinking about it. Is it here yet? Is it here yet? Is it here yet? Well, there's something I can do uh, unless I go steal one. Um, so what do I do? That is such a great question. And there's so many suggestions I have around this. I mean, one thing that I uh, prescribe to clients of mine is something called worry time, which is rather than kind of being interrupted throughout the day about, you know, when am I going to get the vaccine? When am I going to get the vaccine? So it consumes so much headspace and time space. You could actually schedule a time um, for 10 minutes a day to like really focus on your worries. So it feels 
um, like it's concentrated. And then the rest of the time, obviously this is easier said than done, but this uh, can really become something that you can get good at with practice. You can really come back to like, you know, it's 2.22, my worry time is at 3.30, I will save this for worry time. And remarkably what ends up happening is you kind of get bored by your worries or you kind of come to peace with like, okay, my COVID vaccine is going to happen a lot longer than I thought. And it's not the kind of thing that hijacks you spontaneously. No, but, but what happened to me is I'd start worrying about scheduling the worrying time. When's <laughs> you know what's amazing is uh, <laughs> so many people forget their worry time and it's like, what, what a great thing. Like even just the act of postponing it is so helpful. And uh, another thing we could do is, uh, you know, I know it's such a buzzword right now, but really practicing mindfulness and just noticing when your thoughts aren't serving you and coming back. And there's so many wonderful apps and um teachers online that you could practice with what is what is that because everyone on instagram uh, my, is always talking about how mindful they are yeah. and it's like i stop because just yeah yeah mindfulness is learning to be present in the moment with whatever you're doing so if that means you're going for a walk and you're just noticing like the flowers on the street that you're walking on or you're um with your pet and just really paying attention to their fur and your hands you know giving yourself times because it, it remarkably like you know it's funny like so many of the things people worry about will never happen and worrying doesn't actually prepare you for the worst and it just reduces your ability to cope with the worst because it drains your energy um there's crazy studies where people that like expected the worst in terms of academic performance um and then did terribly actually didn't feel better that they prepared for the worst they just felt like they suffered longer so like sort of what you're saying like like mike and i right now we should sort of like take in where we are now look around where we are and well, that's not working <laughs> well, well, we need concentrate to, on we the need palm break... tree outside yeah. oh okay okay <laughs> well, yeah like right now if everyone looks around themselves like every listener uh, tuning in right now if you notice three sights um one at a time three sounds one at a time three sensations one at a time that could be kind of a little mini centering um and we can't like you know be carrying 50 pound weight constantly we kind of need to put it down from time to time and alongside with that because i don't want people to think that i'm just saying like you know put it down you know if there's something productive you could do to um better cope right now to put yourself on the you know list for the covid vaccine and to um you know do what you need to do to feel at peace with what's going on right now in this world um do that but then at a certain point it becomes unproductive and then it's just not helping you or the cause all right dr jenny tates clinical psychologist practicing in beverly hills doctor thank you as always i'm still looking around yeah you'll find some eventually i haven't found it yet. you can tell us about it on monday this has been a rough week so we'll end with a hopeful bit of information researchers say in the future covid19 could be similar to catching a common childhood cold Scientists at Emory University and Penn State say a person's first exposure is usually the worst because there was no previous immunity. They say the body will recognize it the next time around and fight it off with no severe symptoms. They say getting a vaccine could go a long way to turning the virus essentially into the common cold, but they say it's not clear when COVID-19 could become your run-of-the-mill infection. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stay well. Stay well.